night on 80s All Over exclusive interview with the director of Outland, Running Scared, and 2010, the year we make contact, Peter Hyams. And now, your hosts, Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg. Hello and welcome to another patrons episode of 80s All Over. I am very excited. We have a great guest today. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Mr. Drew McQueenie. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm equally excited. This is one that I've been waiting for for a while. It is with much pleasure and much anticipation that Drew and I are pleased to announce Mr. Peter Hyams. Hi. Hey, sir. How are you? Okay. 1977, Capricorn 1. Then throughout the 80s, Outland, Star Chamber, 2010, Running Scared, and The Presidio represent his 80s output, but he also made many other good films beyond that that I quite enjoy, like Narrow Margin, Stay Tuned. I'm a big fan of busting. Yep. And one of the things that it feels like your work has always uh, had going for it is you have a real affinity for these big, dense supporting casts. You had so many great guys in that movie, like Sid Haig and Alan Garfield and Michael Lerner. You seem to let actors really live and breathe on a set. Can you just talk about putting together a cast in the first place and and sort of your approach? My approach, which I have achieved many times, is to be the dumbest person on my film. The job of a director is literally to create a place where actors feel good, actors feel free, and where actors will take chances. I've said many times the saddest days that I have ever experienced filming are those days where I stagger back to my hotel room or my house, having shot what I expected. I believe directing is creating a corridor for controlled accidents. If you get really talented actors, you're not telling them how to act. They know how to act. That's why you want them. You, You just want to see what they bring. Also, to be very honest with you, I love people with texture on their face texture in their voice. I, there are a lot of times when you turn on your television set and you see a network television program, you can tell the actors from a network television program. They look a certain way. They don't have a lot of wrinkles. They don't have a lot of gravel. They don't, they don't have a lot of whatever that is that makes a Joey Pantoliano interesting. So I like, you know, I look for actors who I just think are really good. Because you, I think, came up in the 70s and it was an era where um, there was a uh, willingness to let films be shaggier and have sort of some of that texture to them, um, you were able to work with uh, big movie stars, but in films that felt more like ensemble films. And I think that's a real strength of your your work. Uh, Capricorn One is a great ensemble. I love that you worked with Harrison Ford when he was just becoming Harrison Ford in uh, Hanover Street. Well, I, I actually thought that Harrison Ford was going to be Harrison Ford. I just thought he was going to become huge. The thing that has made Harrison such a kind of gonzo star has always been the ability of Harrison to have his feelings a centimeter below the surface of his skin. You just empathize with Harrison. He makes you feel what he's feeling. And he also projects a kind of Gary Cooper-like decency about him. Yeah, just rewatched Witness two, a couple nights ago and was struck by exactly that. He has such a, a low-key humanity to him. And by the way, it's real. It's not fake. He is a truly decent guy. Could you talk for a little bit about how you decided that for most of your films, you would be your own DP and if that caused any trouble or problems for you in, in Hollywood? Yes and yes. Uh, <laughs> My background is as I was an art student from the time I was seven years old. I studied photography from 
the time I was 12 or 13. I studied it classically. I studied monorail photography. I studied shine flute techniques. I studied breaking down and repairing portrait cameras. I was a pretty well-trained photographer when I came into the business. The union was crazed about barriers and, and making it difficult to be a cinematographer. I'm actually the first Hollywood director to ever be admitted into the Cinematographers Union, and it took 10 years of lawsuits, and it was very, very acrimonious. The union actually had, at the time they put me in the union, I, I was actually resigned to the fact that I couldn't get in the union, and I remember on Star Chamber, I hired a guy named Richard Hanna, who had done one episode of Knott's Landing, and my deal was, listen, I'm going to do it. You'll get the credit, and I won't say anything. I'll say you did it. And then suddenly, this guy, Richard Hanna, who would sit very quietly, it seemed very nice, and read his Bible, he evidently complained, which I didn't know, and the union came swooping down like a bunch of crows and said, you can't do that. I said, I can't do what? He stammered. They said, well, you can't have a light meter. I said, of course I can have a light meter. They said, well, you can't talk to the grip or the gaffer. I said, of course I can talk to the gaffer. I have an idea. I'm, I'm calling the Director's Guild, and I ran to a phone booth and called the Director's Guild. And I said, let's settle who can say what on a film set. And they refused to go to arbitration. They actually tried to sue 20th Century Fox, myself, and the producer, a man named Frankie Blanc. And the judge said, well, have you gone to arbitration? They said, no, we don't want to. And the judge threw it out. The next film I made was 2010. And I said, here's the deal. I was okay doing what I did and letting other people take the credit. I'm now going to make 2010, and I'm not going to make it in America. I'm going to make it in England because I can't take this crap from you guys anymore. So tell it to all the members of the IA. And while you're at it, why don't you tell the Teamsters? And about 48 hours later, I got a call, said, uh, you're in. <laughs> you know, I, I understand why that the unions would be so uh, uh, protective and so stringent. But in a case like yours, where you're clearly a professional DP and a director, you're not a director trying to steal credit from someone. You would think in cases like this, they would just make an exception and let it go. They actually said to me, you can join the union, except you got to start as a loader. And I said, well, there's a kind of interesting hyphen that you got there, writer, director, loader. I don't think it's going to work and out. That's, that's kind of what's mind-boggling is that the, the hyphen thing, you you know, were known as a writer first, T.R. Baskin, and you had worked on television. And so you making the jump to directing is a natural jump that people are adjusted to and make sense, and they're used to that in the industry. The idea that you would also shoot your film now does not seem radical or revolutionary, but... Steven Soderbergh used to refer to... He and I as the committee of two. Um, <laughs> and I love what he's doing. I love that he pushes it the way he does. He is a hero. Well, he's a wonderfully talented, and he's also a guy who just does not seem to respect boundaries. He, he wants to push it all. And he's wonderful. You know, he can do a popular movie. He can do an experimental movie. You never seem bound by genre. You nimbly kind of jumped from Capricorn 1 to Hanover Street. Can we talk for a moment about... By, by the way, please, I've never done anything nimbly in my life. <laughs> um, Conrad Hall called me up one day and said, why aren't you in the ASC? And I said, I'm not in it because they hate me. He said, well, if Haskell Wexner and I sign your application, will you join the, the ASC? And I said, Okay. So Haskell, Wechtler, and Connie signed my application, and I went I had to meet these people at their clubhouse. 
And 48 hours later, I got a letter that said, you have been rejected, which I have framed in my office. It's just ridiculous in any artistic endeavor to turn around and say, you can do this. Yeah, it seems very prohibitive, and it should be the opposite. It should be, hey, if you're good at it and and you enjoy it, you should be able to do it. Let's let's talk a little bit about Outland. Now, we love Sean Connery, and we've been charting like the ups and downs of his post-Bond career, and Outland is one of the good films he chose that is not Bond-like. And, and could you talk for a little bit just about making High Noon in space and, and working with Mr. Connery and all that? Well, th- this was the first of two films we'd wind up doing together. He was one of the great experiences of my life. He is a movie star in the old-fashioned tradition of movie stars. He's just the most stunningly attractive man who has always really enjoyed being attractive. <laughs> A very, very, very hard worker, completely unfull of shit, anti-full of shit, an incredibly generous actor who would gladly give any scene he is in to anybody who outshines him. So there is somebody in, in Outland who frequently on, steals several scenes, and we have to discuss real quick. Frances Sternhagen is a, a force of nature. She's absolutely hilarious, and you like her instantly in that movie. That part, I had always wanted to work with Ken McMillan. I loved him. So I wrote the part for Ken McMillan. And and then my sister, who is, in my opinion, one of the best casting directors that ever lived, she read the script, and, and then she said to me, make the doctor a woman. And I sat and I thought, okay, wonderful idea. I said, who? And she said, Francis Sternhagen. I said, you're supposed to give me a list of a lot of names. She said, I gave you my list. It's Francis Sternhagen. And so I I cast Franny without changing a word of dialogue. And it made the part less of a cliche. She should have been nominated for that film. She's absolutely fantastic. You talk about um, your job being creating a place for actors or a space for them. That is a terrific sense of place. And I love that there was a moment sort of – uh, Ridley Scott did some of it. I think your film does it beautifully. That sort of blue-collar approach to space where it's not an adventure anymore. It's not the astronaut era. It's just people would go to space and get jobs. And I think there's something really special about the way you make that feel real. Thank you. I, I was a reporter for seven years, and I, I, was, I, I, I did cover the manned space program. And nothing brought it home more to me than a statement I'm not sure if it was Ed White or Alan Shepard. He was asked, what, what are you thinking about right before launch? He said, well, you're lying on your back 365 feet in the air on top of 6 million pounds of parts and fuel all submitted by the lowest bidder. And I suddenly went, holy shit, this is, you know, Tom Wolf said it better. I mean, it, it is about the right stuff. It is about those guys. It's not fun, and it's not Star Trekian, and it's risky, and people die. People died. I remember when I did Capricorn One, we built the most faithful model of the lunar lander ever built. Some guys from NASA came out and were looking at it. I said, "Let me ask you a question." I said, "Why is the top part silver and stretched tightly over the skin, and the bottom part gold, and it's like billowy?" He said, that's easy. The bottom part is gold mylar. The top part is silver mylar. People have to be in the top part. Gold mylar is cheap. A nuts and bolts engineer answer. Yeah, it's really what the hell it is. If you saw Apollo 13, these fuckers had slide rules. 
I mean, the, the idea that you're doing math by hand and you have people in space at that moment is wild. And the computer on board Apollo 11 is the calculating power of a Casio pocket calculator. <laughs> and the computer on board the first shuttle was 250K. If you were to announce tomorrow that you're remaking High Noon, people would generally get up in arms because it's a classic favorite. People love that film. But you came at it sideways, which is, oh, this is a space adventure. And it also spiritually is a remake to High Noon. That kind of sideways approach to a remake, I think, appeals to movie fans. You know, it really started the, the genesis of that. I'm desperate and have always been desperate to make a Western. This wonderful guy who I work with, a producer named Richard Roth, said, forget it, the Western's dead. And I remember sitting bolt upright in my little bed one day and came to the conclusion that people like George Lucas had come too long before me, which was that the Western is not dead. The Western is alive and living in outer space. It's about frontiers. So I said, well, if I'm going to do that, why don't I try to make the smartest Western ever made? So I modeled it after High Noon except I wanted to maintain the fact that it was a frontier, that it's Dodge City, that it's tough. You step outside, your head explodes. It's not fun. And, you know, who's going to be there and why are they going to be there? It's to make some money. That's why That's that's why we're going to And go you're going to be a different cut of person that's, that thrives in that environment. So I think you end up with a scarier cast. <laughs> Peter Boyle, as a, as a villain, is inspired. Well, he's also, he was also so smart. Peter projects brains, and I saw him in a movie called Joe. Terrific film. Uh, Terrific. Where, you know, he, he wasn't this cuddly guy. Look, just get really talented people, and really talented people will always surprise you, and, and that's what you want to do. You want to be surprised. You worked with on that one uh, the great Jerry Goldsmith, who I think is in that pantheon of the truly great composers. Um, uh, can you talk about that collaboration? Well, Jerry had done... Capricorn One. I honestly think Capricorn One is one of Jerry Goldsmith's greatest scores. It's a great score. I, I think it's a truly remarkable score. Did you see how it was used in the in that series Homecoming last year? No. Okay, there's a series called Homecoming that's on Amazon, and the entire f- series is spotted with existing score. There's mm-hmm. an entire episode that is about realizing that you may or may not be in a conspiracy and something may not be real. That whole episode is scored to Capricorn One. <laughs> and it's terrific. It's one of those things that dawns on you as you're watching, and it's like, oh, my God, I get why they're doing this. I think that Jerry's score for Capricorn One was just extraordinary. It also had a kind of interesting innovation. I had said to Jerry, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in movie theaters, and I hear that the way movies are scored are kind of the way concerts are seen, which means you can actually hear the violins come from the left, and you can hear the brass come from the right. I said, I don't want that. I would like the audience to feel the music and not suddenly turn to the left or turn to the right when, when a note is played. So Jerry came up with the idea of having two 50-piece orchestras, literally put them on the stage, one on the right and one on the left, same instrumentation and everything, and they each played it simultaneously, which I thought was a wonderful idea. And I thought it worked. I thought it worked wonderfully. So I worked with with Jerry on, on Outland because I, I so loved working with him on Capricorn One. 
And he, you know, he, he was an extraordinarily talented composer. Okay, so from Outland uh, with Sean Connery, you then moved on to Michael Douglas and the Star Chamber. This I did not see as a kid. I, I saw bits and pieces of it, watched it recently. And politically speaking, it's kind of prescient. Michael, again, is somebody I made two films with. I, he, Michael's just one of the great people of the whole world and I think one of the best actors in the whole world. I love that he's a real producer as well, that he's a smart producer. That's, that's actually how we met. We met because Michael had been to the big L.A. screening of Outland, as is my want. I would never go. Uh, I don't go to those things. I can't look at a film I've done. When I'm done with it, I can't. It's too painful. Never have and won't. And then I just got this call, and it was Michael Douglas. And Michael called me and said, I saw your film. I think it's terrific. I think he actually called me from the theater. And I was so flattered. And, I, and he said, I'd like to get together with you. I'd like you to direct this movie. It was called Romancing the Stone. I said, well, you know, I, I'm actually busy writing something of my own. And uh, Michael read it and, and, and wanted to do it. I remember during the, the making of Star Chamber, I used to say to Michael, Michael, you have to star in, in Romancing the Stone. And he went, no, nah, I don't know if they want me. And well, I said, Michael, you have to star in that movie. You And he kept on demurring. <laughs> and they had a different director for that movie, too. They had a director named uh, Robert Zemeckis. Bob did that movie, and Bob was supposed to do Cocoon. Right. And Fox didn't think that Romancing the Stone was going to be a big hit. So they kind of got rid of Zemeckis, who went on to do his own little stuff called Back to the Future. <laughs> And Michael wound up doing Romancing the Stone and was great in it. So, I mean, I, you know, Michael is just one of the loves of my life. It just, just is. I feel like he learned it in the 70s when it was really about finding this provocative or timely idea and then spinning entertainment out of that. Uh, he, he's just so fucking smart. He just really is. Have we lost that knack in entertainment today? I hope not. I don't think so. I, I, you know. It feels like it's harder to get those made. This there, there was a moment where Michael was really good at getting those through the system. It, it, it's harder to get those made as theatrical releases. It's not hard. True. To, it's not harder to get those made. Do you, have you seen Escape at Danamora? Yes. Okay. I mean, how much better filmmaking do you want than that? And it feels like television is where a lot of that is happening, and where filmmakers have that ability now to get those those stories made with the, the way they want to. With the few exceptions of the moonlights of the world, that's where all of it is. I mean, it is the HBOs and the Showtimes and the and the Netflixes of the world. I would rather do a thing on. HBO or Netflix than any place else. You've lived through seismic changes in the business. You've seen the 70s turn into the 80s. You've definitely seen radical shifts in what got made and sort of how it got made, who was paying for it. And through it all, you have continued to to make your films your way. That is not easy and really to be saluted. Um, well, thank you. I have no idea. I don't I have no idea how or why. I have no idea. Honestly, they got to get to the most arguably one of the most interesting points of your career. This is the one that I'm most excited about because I think Scott and I both are, are huge fans of this movie. Yeah. Now, obviously, even at 1983, 1984, already at this point, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey was an iconic masterpiece, accepted, widely accepted as, as a masterpiece. Kubrick's 2001 was widely accepted as a masterpiece long afterwards. The weekend before shooting, the chairman of MGM sent me a bound copy of all the reviews of 2001, and they were hateful. They were absolutely hateful. I do know that the original poster, because it used to be in the halls of MGM, was a 
painting of the big giant space wheel from the director who had done Spartacus. They got monkeys hitting things with, with bones. <laughs> um, and and a, a guy I know who's actually in the theater when they first saw it told me that he kept, you know, they kept hearing thuds as one by one these executives were falling over from cardiac infarctions. Um, <laughs> and nobody was going to see this movie. Nobody. Except for a few people who would go to the Cinerama Dome and get totally fucking baked. <laughs> Sitting, watching this. And place. lay on the front, lay on the floor. There, there was a place, it was the second, it was the first balcony in the Cinerama Dome. And you you, could, you lay back and saw this thing, and they were just getting wrecked. Go look at the poster for 2001, the redone poster, the one that actually they used for the bulk of the run. And it's the baby. And lag line is 2001, the ultimate trip. You know, things are quite often... We, we tend, especially critics, tend to look back at things. I think the phrase rose-colored glasses works. So MGM gave me this book, and they said, would you do this? And I went, of course not. I'm not going not gonna to be compared to Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and then I read the book, and I thought that the book in 1983 was – the book didn't deal with any of the politics of the situation. Russians and Americans were all kind of slapping each other's backs. There's a line in the book, why Dmitry, you old Cossack? <laughs> I swear to God, you go look it up. Um, oh, yeah. So I said, you know what? I'll do this movie if two things happen. If Arthur C. Clarke signs off on what I want to do with this book, and if Stanley Kubrick signs off on me being the director. They set me up talking to Arthur Clarke in, in Sri Lanka and and. I told him what I wanted to do, and it was a pretty radical change. And Arthur totally signed on. He said, absolutely. I said, well, I'll do it, except um, I want to send you every page as I write it, and I want you to sign off. I did not want this movie to open up and Arthur C. Clarke's have some bone to pick with it. And then the studio arranged for a call with Stanley Kubrick, and I was in my office, and my assistant said, "Uh, it's Stanley Kubrick on the phone. And I remember grabbing the phone and standing (laughs) up. (laughs) <laughs> and so I did. I honestly did. And I said, hello, Mr. Kubrick. And he had a New York kind of nasally voice. He said, so Peter, you know, in outline, when you did that shot where you started on the, and went straight away into a thousand questions about photography, because he had been plagued by the same thing, and they wouldn't let him in the union. And he was a wonderful photographer and a fabulous still photographer. All he did was ask me questions and questions and questions, technical questions and and then finally, after about two hours, A, my legs were getting tired, and B, I said, listen, they, they, they want me to direct this movie. Is it okay with you? He said, oh, of course. Just make it your own movie. Don't make it like anybody else. He was so kind. My assistant came running in the office and said, what was it like? And I said, <laughs> well, we, we talked for two hours. I told him everything. He didn't tell me anything. And then about three months later, I was sitting with Arthur Clark, and I said, Arthur, what was the first time you met Stanley? He said, we were, we were sitting on a park bench, and uh, we spent three hours, and I told him everything, and he told me nothing. It's, that was um, his gift. Anyway, I was just simply saying to myself, if I made a film that was so completely different from 2001 that it, you really couldn't fairly compare me, then I would do it. I, I think if I succeeded in anything, I, I succeeded in – making a film that was emotionally and physically different. 
We've talked about the uh, amazing Sean Connery and the fantastic Michael Douglas. Uh, we'd be foolish to not spend some time talking about the late great Roy Scheider. Uh, can you just talk a bit about how he um, how he came to the project and how, how you hired him? Well, you know, from seeing Clute on and then French Connection, I mean, shit, Roy was at the top of my list certainly because I wanted some. Roy has a sympathy about him. He has that. I was a, a bit of what I was talking about, Harrison. He can Roy can suffer uh, on screen, and and he's got, he's never dumb on screen, and you know he's always smart. I'm I'm drawn by smart people, and and it was he's a consummate actor. He's a real he's a con. I you know I had seen all that jazz. I mean he's just that guy. I just tracked down the Odyssey files uh, in paperback to uh, to read, and I love the uh, sort of glimpse into the conversation between you and Clark and. It seems like he was very open to you telling your version of this and, and sort of taking it apart and re- rebuilding it. I love that Haywood Floyd, who is, you know, that couple of scenes in the the first film, becomes the center of this and that he is such a, a different character in your hands. Can you talk about, because I was entertained by how difficult one sequence seemed to be for you guys, and it was the last thing I expected, the Dolphin House? We built a set over the Esther Williams tank. There was, at that time, SeaWorld and Marineland here. Uh, I went to Marineland, and the the guy who was running Marineland was one of two people in America who was allowed to catch bottlenose dolphins. And I spent a lot of time learning about them. He agreed to take these two and transport them, and then with a crane, lift them up and put them in the pool. Came the day, and and he said to me, if they huddled at the bottom... Together, I'm taking them out. It means they're frightened and they don't like it. I, I said, well, then what happens? He said, well, you won't have dolphins. And, and we stood there and watched. They put them in the thing and they just started to swim around happy. It was a teenage boy and a teenage girl. The girl was Leilani and the boy was Crunch. I fell irrevocably and madly in love with, with, with Leilani. And I would come every single morning and just slap the water and she would just immediately come up and look at me and then turn over and let me scratch her under her chin. And Crunch did not come up. He didn't like it. He was a little jealous. And then it was a matter of getting that fucking shot that I just was insistent on. I love the story. I love how much storytelling goes on, how quickly with Haywood's life and you get a real sense of what he's leaving behind and how his wife has this other life that's going on and she's in her own research and, that that kind of thing, that kind of texture in your films, I think it's something that, especially in 2010, you go back to over and over, and it really pays off. There's a lot going on in that movie at any given moment. Well, thank you. I, you know, uh, I had Douglas Rain come and do Hal before we shot, so that the actors could actually work with Hal. Oh wow! I didn't realize that you had shot it. That's amazing. Yeah, I brought him in. He first. We were recording, and we were having trouble because he wasn't doing it. He was kind of stentorian. I, I, I finally said, well, what, what did Stanley tell you? He said, he told me to act like I had a lobotomy. <laughs> I said, well, do that. And he went, okay. And then he went, hello. And the guy that, who was recording jumped like five feet in the air. <laughs> um, so we did all this and then started shooting. And when it came time for Cure Delay, and we started to do this, his scenes, and Kier cried. And I said, what's up? He said, well, it's so touching to do this with the real Hal. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, well, well when we were shooting, nobody knew who Hal was going to be. So if a Cockney second assistant director was, was reading it, so I'd say, open the pod bay doors, Hal. And he'd go, can't do that, Dave. Um, <laughs> sorry, Dave. Uh, and he said, it just wasn't quite the same. Wow. As it turned out, I don't know if people know this, but uh, Kubrick had Martin Balsam do him and didn't like it. Thought he was a bit fetchy. Then got Douglas Rain. We talked a bit about your skill at hiring supporting cast. Bob Balaban, John Lithgow, Helen Mirren. Any one of them could anchor the movie on their own, and they are the supporting cast. Talk a bit about any any of them. I mean, we absolutely love Lithgow. By the way, it's Lithgow. Oh, is it Lithgow? Thank you. Good to know. Yeah, he he, he was very uh, strong in that. It turns out that John and I, we were sitting and, and, and talking one day, and it turns out that we were both at the Art Students League in the same class together when we were young. I, I don't know what to say other than you can't get three more talented and nicer and better people than Helen and Bobby and, and John. They're just everything you wanted. Lithgow, especially, I think, in that film, sells one of the giant effect sequences, which is the spacewalk. And that is so memorable because he is so good at panic. When you're shooting something like that, you're hoping that the technical and the performance all come together, and then you get that perfect marriage of them like this, and one really sells the other. My theory is if you have really talented people doing what they're supposed to be doing, they know how to do it, and you can concentrate on doing some fairly complicated things because you're not worrying about, well, are they going to be able to be what they are? Also, there's a scene with Bobby. It's very, very long push-in shot, and Bobby's talking to, to Hal, and he basically is talking about that it's going to be the end of Hal. And at the end of it, he Bobby's in tears. It's this huge push-in, and Bobby's in tears. And we got done, and I remember I, I kissed him, and I, and I went, that's absolutely wonderful. How'd you do that? And he said, well, I thought of Shane. <laughs> Perfect. You know, my, my theory is whatever works. You never, you never fuck with anybody's process. Drew, what's the name of that actor that we both uh, loved? Is it, I think it's Elia Baskin? Yeah, Elia Baskin's terrific. I wanted the Russians to be Russian. My grandparents are Russian. I know what it sounds like. And I wanted, I just, I wanted them to be Russian. I love that you also, and this is the same thing with Outland. um, It feels like a lot of science fiction is typically science fantasy. Whereas in your films, the science fiction feels like it's grounded in Science. Well, I somebody said I do science fiction movies, and I said no, I do science feasible movies. <laughs> there you go. And I, the air breaking scene is one of the I, I think one of my favorite hard science set pieces in any film. I love the the way you stage that. Well, thank you. I don't know. Just in terms of trying to pull off the the reality of that, uh, did you have heavy involvement from NASA? The heavy involvement came from Arthur in terms of the science of it, and Sid Mead. Oh, Sid Mead. Oh my God. Wow. Those were the two people who gave the science. And, and what I wanted to do was to shoot it essentially from the vantage point of the people who had to be in it to, to convey the hazard of it and the discomfort of it. And you, you pushed the real envelope of environmental sort of science fiction way before CGI sort of came in as a tool. So much of that you're having to invent, right? It is probably the first film or certainly one of the first films to ever use CGI. Jupiter, I worked with JPL on Jupiter and a wonderful scientist named Richard Terrell, and we mapped Jupiter and every single cloud formation there is on Jupiter and had it move in the direction that it moved. 
and then fed it into what was the largest computer in the private sector at that time called a Cray computer. Both Jupiter and, and Io were the actual places. As a matter of fact, there was a, there was a, a, a critic in New York named Rex Reed who uh, That's charitable. didn't like me. Charitable. Calling him a film critic is charitable, sir. Uh, <laughs> a great film director once told me, critics are eunuchs at a gangbang. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Reed took off after me and my ancestors for putting on this impossible and ridiculous, ludicrous, pumpkin-colored thing of Io. And it, it would have been a valid criticism had it not been the actual <laughs> photographs. <laughs> All right, so there you go, listeners. Rex Reed has been demonstrably wrong at stuff for the last 40-some years. and um, I just figure I do enough things wrong, so it's, you don't have to criticize me for the one or two things I do right. Were you happy with the way uh, 2010 was released, reviewed, uh, accepted? Uh, I was very happy with the way it was released and the way it was received. And we used the George Lucas's, uh, they went and aligned all the theaters. It was When I first moved to L.A., I managed a theater that was still in that program, and we had to do it every three months. Yeah. No, Lucas was wonderful. I mean, Lucas has done more than anybody, I think, in the world to affect the way we see and hear movies. It's, it's probably the last of the really kind of elegant and optical composited movies. A wonderful man named Richard Edlund, who won the Oscar for Star, Star Wars, did it. We worked for two years on this thing. It can be done much better and easier now, except what I did paled in comparison to what Stanley Kubrick did, where he did everything in, in, in the camera. I can only just imagine that, that – did you fear that, like, uh-oh, are there fans of this film that will instantly dislike it simply because it's a sequel to a great film? Sure, and rightly so. <laughs> you mentioned uh, George Lucas and, and sort of the technical push that he made in the uh, the 80s regarding both theater uh, presentation and sort of the equipment that was being used to make films. Um, and the score. Everything he did was it affected the way movies are. It kind of hard to move through that decade without crossing paths with him. Same thing I would think with Steven Spielberg. Oh, well. You worked on Amazing Stories, a show that I was uh, hugely fascinated by when it made its debut. Steven Spielberg is, in my opinion, the Amadeus of movies. I used to sit with him and he would talk and just like throw out ideas. You wanted to have like a, a big bucket so you could catch them all in just sheer talent. I don't think there's been a more talented man. When you get the chance to go play on something like Amazing Stories, where he had he had sort of an unprecedented deal, where two years on the air guaranteed, he got to sort of run things and, and put the people he wanted in charge. Did you have freedom when you got to do your episode on that? Oh, yeah. I cast Gregory Hines as the lead because I was going to make Running Scared. I wanted to see what Gregory Hines was like. We both just flipped out for him in Cotton Club. I am a oh, yeah. I no, can't get enough of him on screen. He's amazing. He's wonderful. I mean, I, I was a fan of his from the uh, first time I saw him was a movie called Wolfen. Yeah. Uh, Steven said, who do you want? I said, Gregory Hines. And he went, okay. Steven came to me about two weeks before shooting and said, NBC will go to series if you cast Dennis Weaver. And Dennis, I love. He's a sweet wonderful man and a terrific actor. He said, if you cast Dennis Weaver, uh, you have an NBC series with an on-the-air commitment. He said, all I can do is tell you it's your thing, and if you want Gregory Hines, you got Gregory Hines. 
Except if you go the other way, it is a shit pile of money. That was, that was his quote. And I, I went, well, if it's okay with you, I'd like, to, I'd like to stay with Gregory Hines. He said, fine. Showing him the movie was one of the more terrifying experiences in my life. I mean, showing him the episode was, ter- was terrifying because she just wanted to please him. And I, and I do use the words carefully. I think he is the Amadeus of movies. When he later claimed that it was his favorite episode, I was really, really thrilled. I just rewatched it this morning, and uh, I, I was reminded how much I loved running scared in the theater. And a big part of that is the what feels like really effortless chemistry between Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. They it was genuine. They wound up really, really, really being crazy about each other. When it came to do the movie, it was originally written about two elderly New York cops who retire. And I said, well, I'd like to make it about two young cops in Chicago who don't retire. Was there any hesitation on your part or the studio? Because at this point, you're mainly known for some pretty heady, heavy, smart sci-fi. And now you're cutting right over to a light, jocular, R-rated, but fun comedy. Was Were you afraid of switching gears so so heavily? No. You know, you, you want to tell stories. Uh, and, and sometimes you tell stories and you want people to laugh. And sometimes you tell stories and you want to scare the shit out of people. It just depends on, on the story. I wanted Billy. It was right after he had done the year of Saturday Night Live. And I just thought he was amazing. The studio was less than enthusiastic and they made him come out and screen test. So if I can take credit for anything in this life, I can take credit for the fact that I said, grow a beard. So he came out and did this absolutely dazzling test and then we cast him. And then I just wanted, I wanted Gregory Hines. I thought Gregory and Billy together, it would be a hip movie, you know, and, and, on paper, running scared, you somebody would say, gee, that looks a lot like 48 hours. The key is these are cops. They like each other. They, it's a completely different tone. And my favorite thing about running scared is that they don't have to necessarily be cops. The, the cop stuff is almost the B story. The A story is their friendship. Yeah. This is Billy Crystal's breakout. Up till this point, he had only been in like very small films. He had a good little bit in Spinal Tap, but this was his movie like breakout. So kudos to you for that. Well, thank you. I, I certainly think my adoration of him has been has been uh, proven to be the correct thing. It's one of the most uh, beautiful. I think the Blues Brothers might be the Citizen Kane of Chicago movies, but this this <laughs> might be the the Casablanca. I think if a movie cities like I'm from Philly, uh, you're from New York. Uh, Drew lives in L.A., Chicago, Detroit. These uh, cities have real personality, and kudos to the directors who can pull that personality into a movie. It's one of the reasons I love the elevated train track chase in that movie is it's so specific to location. Yeah, and the city was just so phenomenal. We, we had to shoot the, the L chase. The whole thing had to be done on Sundays. And and originally, I was trying to figure out how to do it. And then somebody said, you know, train tracks are exactly the width of car tires. You can drive a car on train tracks. I said, no. I said, yeah. So we went driving around on the train tracks out in Skokie. I went, okay, we got ourselves a chase. There's only one thing I would like to go back if I could prevail upon you just to skip back to Capricorn 1 and just tell you one story. Please, sure. We assembled the, the Lunar Lander, uh, which is now the Martian Lander, and it, it's there on the stage. I'd gotten the Voyager photographs, and we, to the millionth, we created the Martian surface, and then painted this big psych with exactly the color of the Martian atmosphere. It, it took months to do, and finally it was done. 
we finished on a, on a Friday and Monday we're going to shoot. And Monday morning, the crew call was seven and I got there at five o'clock in the morning and I opened up, had the stage opened up and the production designer and I got on there and flipped on the lights. And there it was. There was my dream. There was Mars. There was the lander. There was the sky. There was the sand. There was everything in the world I had thought of, except when I looked down, there were cat prints. (laughs) And Albert Brenner and I walked and followed the cat prints to the lander where a cat had dumped. (laughs) And there was a pile of cat shit next to the lunar lander. And I went, okay. Magic. There you go. There you go. Anytime you think, anytime you think you're you're worth something, anytime you think you're pretty hot stuff, just think of the cat. Yeah, that's hilarious. I I wanted to ask you something that has very little to do with the '80s, except that you know one of your sons was born in the '80s, I believe. You were the DP on your son's action film. Is that a first? Yeah, it was a Universal Soldier Regeneration, which is a very solid uh, action flick, by the way. I'd say it's the single best experience I ever had. If I had the talent that John has, I'd, I'd be getting Lifetime Achievements Awards. He's, he's got all of the ability I wish I had. During the middle of shooting, it was his birthday, and I bought him a watch, a rather nice watch, and I had inscribed on the back of it, Happy Birthday, Boss. Oh. <laughs> and he was the boss. He's a talented Talk fellow. a bit about uh, Ann Archer and Gene Hackman. Uh, I, I like Narrow Margin very much. Didn't know it was a remake at the time. Do you have any fond memories on that one? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, you know, Gene Hackman is one of the greatest actors in the in history of the English language when it comes to movies. I mean, I think he's absolutely, he's as good as there has ever been. Anne is a lovely lady and a very good actress. The, the only difficulty was Gene was someone who liked to do something once, maybe twice. And Anne would like to do something six, seven, eight, nine times. As I said, I never, ever want to fuck with anybody's process. So sometimes with Gene and Anne, it was a little complicated because Gene would get a little restless and, and Anne would kind of get up to speed. They figured out ways. Gene taught me more about acting, I have to say, than anybody in the world. An actor would come on and do a day's work. After we rehearsed, Gene would turn to me and say, I liked him. I like her. They listen. I don't like this actor. They don't listen. And I began to realize that acting is really about listening. And it was Gene who taught me. I once said to him, that Gene had a, a saying, good work comes from conflict. And I remember saying, oh, God, no, I don't think it does. I think it comes from the opposite. And then I said, said to him one day, you know, I don't think anybody has ever said, let's go to New York and see a Broadway work. They say, let's see a Broadway play. I grew up, because of my family's business, with the greatest concert musicians in the world. And Arthur Rubenstein and Isaac Stern spent eight hours a day practicing, except when they got on the Carnegie Hall stage, they played. Do you know what they call you guys? The players. You go to a a Broadway play, gray and yellow magazine they hand out. It's not called a work bill. It's called a play bill. So actors, in my opinion, they've done the work. I mean, obviously, you have to know your lines, and obviously, you have to have some technique, except you've done the work. And what you bring with you are all of your thoughts, all of your rejections, all of your acceptances, everything good that's happened to you, everything's bad that's happened to you, all your failed love affairs, all your successful love affairs. They're all, you bring them all. You've done the work. Now go play. 
you know, you talked about Connery being one of the great experiences of your life, and you worked with him at a moment where he was sort of between Bond and the Untouchables, which I, I think is sort of that moment where Hollywood didn't really know what to do with him. You worked with him then, and then post-Untouchables, you work with him on the Presidio, where suddenly the energy is very different around him. Suddenly he's become recognized again as the icon he is. Was there a difference in your experience or in Sean, or is it just he was the same person? The- no, Sean was Sean. Sean was never anything except straight. He was the straightest man you could ever meet. There was no artifice. He would countenance no artifice. So whatever you had to say to Sean, let it be straight, let it be true. Don't bullshit him. And he wouldn't bullshit you. And that never changed. So, And he asked me to do the Presidio. He brought me into the Presidio. So it was a a slightly different dynamic. I mean, (laughs) on Outland, you know, when you tell an actor that you're going to shoot the movie, they listen to you, and then they, they don't really believe it. And the first day of shooting, Sean was looking around for the DP. And there I was with light meters around my, my belt and, and standing there with a 20-watt bulb at the end of a string. And Sean looks around and, you know, that left eyebrow went up. And then when that left eyebrow goes up, you duck. And uh, <laughs> he said, what's that, boy? He called me boy. I said, uh, that's a 20-watt light bulb. It's a very long shot. You walk full body. You walk into a absolute choker close-up. And the camera left side of your face is going to be black total shadow, and I'm going to hold this 20-watt light bulb, and it's going to catch a pinprick in your eye. So in the shadow side of your face, there'll be this, this spot in your eyeball. And he went, <clears throat> and then we went ahead and shot. Just a little guarded. And then he came on the set the next morning. He said, I want to see Daly's boy. I said, well, yeah, we'll, at lunch break, we'll always, no, I want to see them now. I went, oh, Okay. So I, I called up the other, Stuart Baird, and I said, Stewie, uh, his highness is on his way to see dailies. <laughs> and uh, he showed him the dailies. And it happened to have been a, just, you know, a perfect close-up of Sean Connery. He came back on the stage, didn't say a word to me, didn't say nice job, nothing. Came back on the stage, started the work, and turned to me and said, where's your light bulb, boy? <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And then we were okay. <laughs> Um, one of the things that doing this show uh, makes very clear as we interact with the, the people that listen to it is there are certain films that people just have huge, wild affection for, films that have giant tales from the decade. And you're an executive producer on a film that I don't think was a major hit at the time, but that is beloved now. And we're talking, of course, about The Monster Squad. Yeah, I know. It's weird. There are two films that I was involved with. One was The Monster Squad. And want to stay tuned. And I have encountered more people of a certain age who said, you made our favorite film. It's Stay Tuned or The Monster Squad. Well, you worked with John Ritter on Stay Tuned. And man, there are very few people we love more here than John Ritter. John Ritter was the sweetest, incredibly funny. You just had to kind of let him loose. You know, you just had to say, gee, maybe you want to try this. And he would just, he was wonderful. And Pam Dauber was a terrific lady. And, and. The two of them like working together. I wonder if that joke is lost on on younger audiences that like John Ritter and Pam Dauber at the, this time were known as two of the most iconic TV stars ever. Between Three's Company and Mork and Mindy, they you know they couldn't walk down the street without getting mobbed. That their casting alone is a funny gag. 
And to me, one of the funniest people I have ever encountered in my life on screen and off is, is Gene Levy. Oh, my God. You know, so it, it, there were funny people in it. So when one of these movies does end up having this giant tail on it, is it a surprise to you? And can you look back on it now and figure out what it was? Or is it just, okay, that's that clicked with people and I'm as uh, delighted as anybody to, to see it happen? Well, it's it's a combination of that and where the fuck were you when it came out? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. uh, now, you, then after that, you did not only two films with, with Jean-Claude Van Damme, but in my opinion, his two best films. Like when you first started working with Jean-Claude Van Damme, were you struck by anything particular about him? I was struck that martial arts films uh, were all populated by these slow motion balletic shots. I remember saying, I don't think kicking and fighting is poetic. I think it's sudden and harsh. And so I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Here are the things. And you may not like them, except here are the things. I'm not going to co-coordinate fights with you. I'm not going to shoot slow motion. I'm not going to do this. And John claude was very, you know, okay, man, whatever you want. He ultimately was uh, very willing. And the producer Moshe Diamant was a guy, you know, I've, I've done seven films with him now. I mean, he's, he's a real partner for me. There was a, a experience I wanted to ask you about, and I, I understand sometimes with films that you don't make, you don't end up talking about the experience, but I wanted to see if you were up for it. How can you talk about the experience of not doing something? Uh, well, the the film The Hunter. Oh, oh that. I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of that moment where, you know, a movie star is on the wane and is still sort of working to to figure out how to play that iconic character they were playing. And McQueen, I was raised on McQueen, so and I was raised in reverse order. That was the first one I saw, and then my dad took me back. His home video came in. So I was to me, he was the biggest movie star in the world, and he called me up and he said, "I want you to do this film. You, I like the way you do action. I know you've heard I'm difficult. Uh, I'll do what you want." So I went about, as I do most things, I, I read this book and uh, I spent a lot of time with Papa Thorson and a lot of... It's a great character. Did a lot of research and began writing it and writing it. And, and Steve would call me from meetings and we'd be out at Alice's restaurant and he'd be spitting tobacco juice into a glass and be talking and he'd say things like, you know, I could flick your eyes out if I wanted to. I go, uh, well, I hope you don't. Uh <laughs> And he was giving me, it's, it's actually the, the most seminal moment ever because he was just making me insane. And a meeting was set up with me and Richard Brooks. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard, besides being one of the great writer-directors that ever lived. Richard was somebody who woke up absolutely furious and that then got progressively more pissed off as the day went on. So he was, he was just one of the angriest people you could ever meet. This meeting was set up, and I went downstairs in this building at Paramount. He had uh, he was cutting, uh, looking for Mr. Goodbar. His secretary said, uh, I, yes. I said, Peter Himes, I'm here to see you, Mr. Brooks. She said, oh, sure. And she opened the door to his office and kind of took her foot and pushed me in and closed the door behind me. She didn't want to go in there. And it was this long office with no lights on, and there was Richard sitting in his salt-and-pepper crew cut, with a pipe rack around him, cameo lit, track above his head. And I stood there in front of the closed door and nothing happened. And I <clears throat> cleared my throat. Nothing happened. I walked to his desk. Nothing happened. He was cleaning his 
pipes. I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Finally, he looked up at me and he said, what's your problem, kid? And I inhaled. And then for like 15 minutes straight, I was telling him chapter and verse of, and verse of all the things that McQueen was doing to me. And Finally, more out of a need of oxygen than anything else, I stopped. And there was a pause, and he said, Are you done? I said, Yes, sir. He said, I'll tell you this once. So listen and listen good. And he leaned forward to me and he said, The business of making movies with movie stars is the business of eating shit. Now get out of here. <laughs> And I, I walked out, and I was in the hallway, and I suddenly heard the choir, heard the angels. And I went, oh, my God, Richard Brooks eats shit? Wow. Howard Hawks eats shit? Wow. Steven Spielberg eats shit? And I was like Bubba and Forrest Gump. I went, I, I, can, I, I can eat shit on a stick. I can eat fried chicken. I, I can eat bullshit. I can eat kind of shit day is. And it really was the most liberating moment of my life because the worst thing about shit eating is you always think you're the only person that's doing it and once you find out no it's like part of it's a part of the job you go okay you know it's like you know david lean said let's face it this is the last of the traveling circuses and what a director is doing is trying to do fine pencil work in the middle of the circus so it is the circus and and everybody who makes movies are the people who were in their beds in iowa and heard a train that kind of mournful whistle of a train at night and they climbed out of their bedroom window of their farmhouse and ran across the cornfield and jumped on the train. And that's what movies are. I I have a quote from Sir Carol Reed and it said to the effect, making a movie is all work, all worry, all fear and all heartache. Not making a film is worse. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a real treat. And I do feel like uh, as we go through these films and see them again in the, in the context of the moment they came out, they've aged really, really well. I think Outland holds up beautifully. Uh, 2010, Running Scared. Uh, it's a real treat, sir. Well, you're kind of not deserving. I thank you very much. Uh-huh.